Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, we don't normally think of soldiers and first responders as professional athletes, but that's exactly how my guest today argues they should see themselves. His name is Rob Shaw, and he's the founder and president of the Mountain Tactical Institute. It's a research organization dedicated to creating fitness programming that takes workouts outside the gym and gives them a mission-centered focus. Rob believes that soldiers, police officers, firefighters, even plumbers and HVAC guys, and folks who participate in strenuous mountain activities like rock climbing, and backcountry skiing should view themselves as professional athletes and train not just to train, but for a purpose outside the gym. And today on the show, Rob and I discuss what makes the Mountain Tactical Institute's mission-focused approach to fitness different from other organizations, why it is that soldiers and first responders should think of themselves as professional athletes, why soldiers serving in Afghanistan started following his fitness programming for mountain climbers, why there's so many out-of-shape first responders on active duty, and how to train to become a tactical athlete, even if you're a civilian. Great show, packed with information. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash tactical athlete where you can find links to resources we can delve deeper into this topic rob shawl welcome to the show well thank you brad good morning uh so you uh, own a company founded a company called mountain tactical institute back in 2007 uh originally was a mountain athlete but you now it's now called mountain tactical institute i'm curious before we get into talking about MTI. What was your background before that? What prompted you to start um, Mountain Athlete? Uh, lifelong gym rat on the fitness side. Um, went to Coast Guard Academy. Was in the Coast Guard for five years after school and military. Then went and got my master or uh, my master's degree, actually in political science as my education. And uh, and then I uh, uh, moved back to Wyoming and uh, started a company um, and uh, did that for ten years and. Uh, decided to sell that and wanted to do something else. And I just, one of those guys who kind of would go to the gym and train and pretty much, uh, other guys would, other people would see me train and want to start training with me. And, uh, there was a, I was just in a small town in Wyoming, a little bit South of Jackson here where I grew up, uh, just training in a physical therapy, like little gym. Um, it was the only thing we had in this town pretty much a universal machine, a few free weights, <laughs> some dumbbells. And, uh, the, the lady who owned that said, Hey, I want you to start coaching for me. And I kind of st- started doing that. And, uh, one thing led the other and it just kind of worked out where I wanted to go ahead and transition into, into coaching. And that's kind of what, uh, got me there. I, Jackson, uh, where the town I was in, uh, it's a little bit too small for what I wanted to do. And so, um, Jackson is a really interesting place. And I, started a company called Mountain Athlete. I wanted to come up here and work uh, with some of the athletes up here, specifically mountain guides. 
And uh, so I came up here and uh, reached out to one of the guiding companies, said, hey, I'll train your guys for free. And uh, made a lot of early mistakes. Um, and everything's kind of developed uh, uh, from that. So what's MTI's focus? I mean, it's called Mountain Tactical Institute. So I'm, I'm guessing it's mountain athletes and tactical guys. Yeah, kind of our company mission is to um, improve mountain and tactical mission performance um, and keep these types of athletes safe. Um, so that's really our focus. We, for years, had primarily um, emphasized fitness programming and fitness training. Um, we did some other stuff, too, on the tactical side. We actually developed a system to train accurate marksmanship under stress, believe it or not. Did a lot of shooting. Um but then just uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, we expanded our uh, reach um, to start taking a look at um, policy, safety issues, gear. And so now we're pretty much a research institute. We, we cover all those different areas, um, anything that has to do with uh, mountain or tactical performance um, and mission success, we're interested in taking a look at. So with the mountain athletes, why – why do you think these folks needed specialized fitness programming? Isn't doing their job or activity enough? I mean, if you want to get better at skiing, like you just go backcountry ski a lot. You're right. There was really no, um, and there really is no strong tradition of gym-based fitness programming for mountain athletes, especially on the recreational side. Um, now, the the high-level athletes do this type of stuff, the high level rock climbers and obviously the Alpine race skiers, um, US ski team, those types of folks do a lot of uh, gym based programming. But for uh, even the backcountry skiers or the alpinists, there was really no um, strong tradition of that. And um, my uh, approach was um, just to get in there and see what we could do and uh, and develop a programming that transferred um, to mission performance. I think that as more and more athletes started doing these sports, we, we saw a couple things. First, um, because of the X Games and uh, Free Ski World Tour, there was a little bit more money and emphasis and media attention on some of these sports. And what that did was it started attracting a higher level of athlete. Here in Jackson, it's pretty amazing how many collegiate division one athletes come into the gym to train and they're here, you know, ski bumming or, or trying to develop their, their Alpine uh, mountain athlete type resume. Um, and so I think that the sport started attracting better athletes and those athletes had a background in uh, strength conditioning, especially a lot of collegiate athletes. And then also because of the attention um, on the media side, um, the competition for attention and what people were doing on the outside just kept on increasing and increasing. So all those different factors have worked together. I'll be the first to admit that um, it's still not strong in these communities. That's one of the things that um, we've always kind of struggled with. And we, I've kind of got away from trying to convince people how um, on the mountainside how um, proper programming will improve their performance. Um, we've just been doing it too long. Now, now we just do it and let our athletes speak for us. Um, and, uh, we've had some really great success with some athletes. So your, your initial programming was geared towards mountain athletes, rock climbers, skiers, things like that. How did your programming come to the attention of military members and, um, how did that transition into tactical or military athlete? 
yeah, 2008, 2009, you know, I remember, um, we would just put our sessions up online and I remember just getting emails from, um, guys downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, mad at me cause I hadn't got the, the session up for that day online yet. Of course they were ahead of us or behind us on, <laughs> and it just started building and building and, um, especially on the Afghanistan side, we had military units who were deploying to really mountainous regions at altitude and their patrol uh, mission set included a lot of up and down hiking under load and they just were getting their unfit for it. And so um, our work on the mountain side, we had guys reach out to us to start developing programming to get guys ready. And we developed a program we called the, uh, Afghanistan pre-deployment training program, which we gave away. And uh, we gave that away to thousands of guys. We had battalion commanders deploy it with their entire battalions, lots of individual guys, lots of platoon leaders and squad leaders and up and down the chain. And it was just a, uh, a program we developed from what we'd learned working here on the mountainside on how to get athletes ready in a gym-based setting where they don't have a mountain outside. If you're in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, or Fort Bragg, North Carolina, you can't go hike up and down a mountain. Um, but to, to kind of use what they had, really basic equipment, um, and do the best we could to get them ready to go down range. So that's kind of what it got us our start. So, I mean, like, what, what do you think is lacking in the default physical training in the armed services currently where you had guys in Afghanistan and Iraq saying, I'm going to go to this outside source to get my physical training in really just knowledge um just how do you train to climb up and down you know mountains when you first once you because guys would deploy and get down range and you know the next day they'd be out on patrol so how do you train for that and the the traditional we were coming along um you know crossfit had a huge impact on military um, guys also um greater than us um, and, uh, and so guys would do CrossFit or they would do typical military PT, which is running push-ups and sit-ups and, uh, find they got down range and they just were performing well when they did their patrols. Um, so, um, that kind of led to them seeking us out just in that aspect of that. It was just a knowledge of how you program and train for that. Um, and that kind of got us going on this idea of working with the different sports that we work with and then with these different mission sets on the tactical side, it helped us get more and more focused on designing sport-specific or event-specific or mission-specific programming, fitness programming, for whatever that mission is going to be. So um, we went from designing a general training program for mountain athletes to designing a season-specific program for lift-assisted alpine skiing designing a really mission-specific programming for one of our athletes who attempted to to ski or to climb and ski a uh, major peak in the Wrangell Mountains up in Alaska. So we, uh, what we found is that we, as we started doing more and more programming, our stuff got more and more specific from a general training program for mountain athletes, all-around mountain athletes, to a s- season-specific programming for something like lift assisted skiing to a really specific program for an athlete who's going to do a uh, backcountry 
major ski mountaineering expedition, a single 24-hour push for a, um, a peak in the Wrangell Mountains in Alaska. And all those different types of programming from the fitness perspective are different. And what we've developed um, is a methodology on how to identify the fitness demands of the sport, of a season, of a specific event, work backward from those demands, identify the fitness programming, which trains those demands and gets an athlete ready sport specifically for that event or mission or sport or whatever it is. So our, our currency in terms of the athletes that we work with is that methodology, how we put all that stuff together to develop programming that really transfers outside the gym to mission specific performance. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit more about what your programming looks like in a bit here, but let's talk about uh, military athlete a bit. So, you know, as you, the number of requests you were getting from, for mission specific and more tactical specific programming increased, you started military athlete. Um, let's say, I'm sure there's plenty of listeners who are listening to the show right now and they're thinking of joining the military or they want to get selected for special forces. Um, based on your experience with working with thousands of different um, ind- of individuals in the, the military world, what are the most important things that listener should know in order to prepare for, for phys- the physical training portion of that? Not to assume that just being fit in one area will make you fit for what you're going to face at boot camp or at special forces selection or whatever. Um, what we say is that the further you are away from the event, the more general your programming can be. And as you get closer, the more specific it should be. So for example, um, um, guys, you do a lot of CrossFit can't assume that because they're smoking these three to five minute super intense gym-based exercises or events and in a CrossFit that that's going to transfer over to being able to rock 12 miles with 45 pounds, you know, in three hours at the end of a long 10 hour day of getting smoked by the cadre. (laughs) Um, so there's just, uh, the idea is to focus on or identify kind of what, what you're going to be facing and then train for that. Um, and just understand that not all programming transfers well and identify the programming that transfers well or the preparation that'll transfer well to the event. That's, that's great. Um, and I, I've also noticed on your site too, that you've also expanded into creating programming for law enforcement officers and fire and rescue professionals and first responders. Um, and I guess there was a need for that. I mean, you, you had a blog post where you talked about the, the number of first responders who are out of shape, like not just like they can't run very far, like they're obese or whatever. Um, do you have any statistics about the number of out of shape first responders in the U S out there? Not to that level. We do know that, uh, for example, in 2015, the number one cause of firefighter deaths was cardiac arrest, um, which is just heart attacks. Um, and that's consistently the issue. What we, we, we kind of happened was we had, many military guys were moving out of the, they get out of the service and they would go, uh, to the first responder world, especially in the law enforcement side. And then we also got some currency within the law enforcement guys on the side who were in there already and found our stuff and started wanting us to start programming for, um, cops and detectives and SWAT teams. And the programming is different than the military stuff. But amongst the first responder 
community in general, there is not a strong fitness culture. One of the things the military has that many, or the, the vast majority of first responder units doesn't have is an annual high jeopardy fitness assessment. High jeopardy means you don't do well, you can lose your job. Many, um, all the academies for the fire academies or the um, law enforcement academies, um, they have entry-level gate fitness assessments, and fitness is a big part of the academy. But once guys and women, I guess, get out of the academy, they go into their units or their departments, there's no more for most units, there's no more um, fitness assessments. Or if there is a fitness assessment, it doesn't have high jeopardy or the standards are so low that it's a joke. Um, and so what we've kind of found is that we've actually studied, um, we set some researchers just to study the fitness culture at um, a, uh, a fire department in a mid-sized city in the Midwest. And we developed, I sent a PhD and another researcher, and that was one of the things we wanted to take a look at, you know, can we develop a fitness culture assessment? So we took a look at, you know, individual interviews, we interviewed the command, we kind of observed to see how much guys were training. At this uh, department, every every station had kind of a tiny little fitness room where they had some, you know, dumbbells and uh and plenty of stuff to train, equipment's never a reason, but um, this department, there was actually a requirement that um, the firefighters train every day they were on duty, and they had to sign, they had to sign something, or their um, department, ca or their station captain had to sign something to verify they did it, and there were some integrity issues, guys were signing and they weren't training, it was just part of this kind of culture. Certainly, there were guys at this uh, department who were very fit, um, but many of them were fit not for work, but for their sport. So there were some triathletes who just did endurance stuff, and some powerlifters who just did power, you know, heavy lifting. You can kind of see how that works. But as a, so what we found was there's a lacking kind of a programming um, to train for their work, their job, their profession, and then also just um, a pretty poor culture. We uh, actually took a look at our the articles that we wrote last year in 2016 and identified which ones were the most read. And the one that was the most read was uh, I wrote an article was titled, you know, first responders, how come you tolerate unfit police and firefighters? We had heard when I went, I've worked with um, lots of these guys and taught courses at departments. And there's all lots of excuses on why first responders as a as a general just not a strong fitness culture and i just started thinking about it that it's an incredible safety issue um an unfit fireman or a police officer can get himself killed or herself killed and some of the people in the department no matter what it is killed also it's a huge safety issue um but it's not really thought of that that way one of the there are some other things that are that kind of prevent a strong fitness culture from being developed. One is that unions often fight fitness standards or fitness assessments. Down in Colorado Springs, um, a couple years ago, uh, really enlightened. Colorado Springs is where the headquarters of the National um, Strength Conditioning Association is. And the local police department kind of worked with the NSCA, um, kind of enlightened um, uh, chief at the police department to implement a high jeopardy fitness assessment 
at that department. And, um, and they had a gentle on-ramp for this fitness assessment to let everybody in the department know it was coming. Everybody took it. You know, they had a chance to get up uh, and do it well. Um, plenty of time, you know, coaching was offered. And it, when it finally got jeopardy when it was finally implemented, um, several of the female members didn't pass the assessment. And um, one of the first – it was a jeopardy assessment. So one of the first things that happened is if you didn't pass, you were taken off the street and put on desk duty until you passed it. And uh, there was a lawsuit that came out of that. The uh, um, the officers who didn't pass sued the department. A judge put a stay on the fitness assessment. This is a fairly common thing. So there are just some things on the military side in terms of culture, in terms of high jeopardy fitness assessment that is done every year, how it's related to – you can't be an up-and-coming officer in the, in the Army these days and not have a pretty smoking PFT score. <laughs> it's going to get – you're going to – it's going to hurt your performance evaluation. All those things make it easier um, to have a, a stronger fitness culture in the military, and those tools aren't there on on the first responder side. The other thing that's really interesting on the first responder side – there's just so many interesting things about it is that in the military, if you get, you know, past 40, 40, you're pretty much done being on the tip of the spear. You know, even even on the enlisted side, you're you're high enough ranked where chances are you're not running and gunning with the, the boys anymore. But on the first responder side, that's not the case. Um, I just saw a statistic today where um, the average – or the biggest block age block for firefighters in the nation is like 41 to 50. So it's entirely possible to be a, a policeman or a firefighter in your late 40s or 50s and actually be, you know, the guy on the on the nozzle going in to fight the fire. And we work with several guys who do that. Um, so they can work uh, longer at, you know, at kind of the tip of the spear and be in danger, which is even which would point to even a greater need for fitness. But You've got this thing that's called legacy members is the term for it. These legacy guys are like, you know, I'm too old to do that. Or, you know, I didn't do that when I was coming up, so I don't need to train now. Or I'm so street smart or fire aware that I'll never get myself in a situation where I'll need to, to you know, have a great fitness. It's just an interesting um, dynamic that really works against developing a fitness culture. The other thing that is kind of interesting as I've worked with first responders, especially on the law enforcement side, but really both, how much respect I've gained for them. Um, in the military, unless you're – well, even if you're at a tier one special forces unit, those guys generally know when they're going to be in harm's way and when they aren't. But for a policeman or a firefighter, it's like they're deployed all the time. You know, Any normal traffic stop could result in you know a dangerous situation. Um, so, um, it's just, an, I really have developed a, a high level of respect for these athletes and we've just been trying to work with them. We, again, kind of like on the mountainside, we, we kind of step back and trying to convince people why fitness is important. And we're trying to identify the people who agree with us in the first responder side, give them the tools they need to train sports specifically for, for their, uh, their job and just let others take notice. Um, we kind of found that 
in general, the top performers in the military first responder side also happen to be pretty darn fit. And, uh, there's a reason for that. Fitness improves everything. Um, we, you know, if you have a, um, a cop who just depends on his fitness, his body, um, to keep himself safe and his partner safe, and he's obviously deconditioned, it makes you wonder about how, how that cop is doing the other aspects of his profession. You know, is he doing his paperwork properly? You know, is he going to the range and he's spending time with his weapon? Um, is he reading the latest on case studies? I mean, what we've kind of found in general is that, and this is across all the communities that we work with, um, we, the, the guys who are the athletes, uh, men and women who come in and train with us or follow our programming are also the top levels of the other elements of their profession. So fitness trains everything. We, here in Jackson, the guides, the mountain guides, professional mountain guides who spend the most time with us are the most experienced, highest level mountain guides. <laughs> the young guides aren't in there training with us. <laughs> it's the older guys who know the most who are in there training with us. They've come to realize the importance of fitness and how they want to be professional about that element of their job, just like everything else. Well, I think it's interesting. You've been, as you've been talking, you've been referring to uh, police officers, military guys, uh, firefighters as athletes. And I think that's a big thing you you hit on your site and with what you do is you you want first responders and military individual folks in the military to think of themselves as professional athletes or tactical athletes. Why do you think that? Why do you think it's important that they have that mindset and think of themselves that way? Well, if you if you're a, a cop and you get injured, you know, you, you can't do your job. You're not going to get paid. So there's a direct link between health and fitness for a first responder, a mountain guide, or a tactical athlete and their paycheck. Just like there is for an NFL quarterback. Um, if, a, if an NFL quarterback gets injured uh, because he's unfit or um, isn't fit coming into camp, he can lose his job. It's, it's a direct link to his paycheck. That's kind of how I define an athlete. In that sense, we have a term we've used before called industrial athletes, plumbers, carpenters, um, you know, HVAC guys. Those guys are athletes too. You know, if they get hurt um, or something, or they're not fit enough to do the job, they're just not going to get paid. So it's almost an economic point that I want to make. Um, but also there's an idea. It's kind of cool to be a professional athlete. You know, I'm a, I'm not, I'm a strength and conditioning coach. So, um, uh, I kind of work out for a living, right? <laughs> but there's no real transfer over to my real, to my real job. I, I, we, we are purposely use that term. We call the, the, the people who come to our gym athletes. We don't call them clients. Um, the semantics is important. I think it, it lays a, uh, it brings a, a level of um, currency to the work that they're doing. If they think themselves of athletes, I think it just helps them um, embrace this idea that um, they're training for the job and, and their fitness is an important part of their profession, a really important part of it. And hopefully it will encourage uh, them to invest in it, do it well, get, get self-educated, and also set an example for um, other first responders or military guys or, or mountain people out there um, to kind of follow their lead. What's the overarching philosophy uh, behind becoming a tactical athlete? And I mean, are there different fitness or skill aptitudes a tactical athlete should have? 
yeah, we've we've actually uh, even broken it down further. Um, we've identified five types of tactical athletes and fitness demands for each type. Many of the, the fitness demands carry over, um, but um, some have all of them and some don't. So, for example, a uh, um, a military, um, you know, like an army ranger or infantryman or a special forces guy, um, they need a high relative strength. Um, relative strength is strength per body weight. We're not trying to develop Olympic weightlifters or world champion powerlifters or bodybuilders. We just want athletes who have high relative strength. Um, our strength standards uh, for tactical athletes are not super aggressive and ambitious in the strength world they're you know relatively moderate um, but for athletes who have a myriad of fitness demands um, you know they're uh, they're fairly high level we want them to have a high level of work capacity but when we talk about work capacity it's not like it's just any type of work capacity tactical athletes um, law enforcement fire rescue military they need to be able to do repeatable they need to be (laughs) on the work capacity side they need to be able to sprint repeatedly sprint recover sprint recover sprint recover so um, not only they need high work capacity for multimodal stuff we're not sure what type of uh, event they're going to face out in the field but we do know um, that in general um, they they need to be able to sprint Um, on the endurance side our military athletes and our mountain athletes need a high level of endurance but it's not just any type of endurance. Um, military athletes don't need to bike. They don't need to row. You know, they need to be able to run and they need to be able to ruck run or ruck well for long distances and recover from it. Um, on the mountain side, um, athletes need to be able to run and hike uphill under load and recover from it. Um, on the law enforcement side, one of our fitness attributes for law enforcement guys um, on the patrol and detective side is upper body hypertrophy. Um, a, a, a cop who has a big chest and biceps, that could be actually a tool to intimidate bad bad guys from trying something stupid. Um, so we actually train our programming for cops. We'll have upper body hypertrophy in there. Um, and we'll, we'll manipulate our sets and reps to and have different cycles which emphasize upper body hypertrophy. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we have identified fitness attributes for tactical athletes. And then amongst that community, which ones apply to the to different professions. And then we program from there for those individual professions. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining, I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. 
Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And I also noticed you also put emphasis on um, durability with across your different athletes. Yeah, my the more I've done worked with durability, the more I guess contrarian to what generally happens in the strength conditioning world I've become. Early on, we we kind of jumped into the idea of durability and. I went and got FMS certified through Greg Cook, and we implemented the FMS. I'm, are you familiar with the FMS, Brett? It's functional movement system, right? Yeah, it's called the functional movement screen, and uh, 
And uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, can you explain what that is? The functional movement screen is developed, I don't know, a decade or so ago by um, a couple of PTs on the East Coast. And what they claimed it did was it was just a screen of different movements and exercises that they could put athletes through that had some predictive value on injury in the event or whatever they were doing. So if athlete didn't score above a certain level in these in the screen, um, their chances of getting injured were greater is what the FMS founders or designers claimed initially. Um, and so this is a great all, – all of a sudden, it's a great tool. This is the idea. The idea in general is that really proper movement transfers to durability. And these guys claimed that they had a, a screen to identify what was a proper level of, of, of movement. And then based on how you did on the exercises they had um, on the screen, they had exercises you could train to get better at the screen. And we – initially really jumped on that idea and, and did it with all our athletes and and uh, implemented their exercises. And we also followed what was going on with other PTs and other type of mobility and durability um, thought out there. But the more and more I worked with that type of stuff, the less and less value I thought it had. Um, and that's continued. Um, right now, my my durability equation is uh, dur- uh, durability equals 95% sport slash mission slash event fitness plus 5% durability and mobility. Um, there's an emphasis on the fitness side for sure. Um, and so uh, we've kind of come to the point where being sport-specifically fit for whatever you're going to do is the greatest buffer you're going to have to stay durable. And when we started to take a look, and there's been several studies that have come out now who have questioned the FMS's ability to predict durability. There was a – one of the, the studies that initially caught my eye was uh, – it was of several hundred Marine Corps OCS candidates, and uh, they, they were given the FMS, and, and they – and the way I understood it was that the FMS predicted, you know, fairly well how much injury would come out of OCS. But then when they started taking a closer look at it, now it was the FMS plus their USMC PFT scores that really was the greatest predictable um, when they put them together. And then when you broke it out a little bit further, the PFT ski scores were really the greatest, you know, had a greater uh, alone than the FMS. Anyway, as we've, as we've, uh, moved down and, and become and had more experience programming for athletes um, we've identified the idea that we really want to make guys durable but a huge part of that is get them sport specifically fit for their event in this world of strength and conditioning and I'm sure you've seen this in the interviews and stuff that you've done <laughs> I guess everything works and nothing works forever and whenever I when I first started uh, programming and designing I was so righteous about so many things you know, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do that. Or that's, you know, and uh, the, the, or and the more I've done it, the, the less righteous I've become in general. Um, but also the more skeptical I've become of, of single bullets that seem to just do more than, are just too good to be true, I guess. And uh, so from our perspective, the durability is primarily just a high, high degree of relative strength. Um, high degree of sport specific fitness. So if you're 
uh, a guy going down range and you're going to go to a tactical situation on the military side, chances are if you do come under fire, you're going to be sprinting, hitting the ground and shooting and get up and doing it again. And uh, if you're not used to doing that, you're not going to have the work capacity to do it. If you're not used to doing it under load, you know, with your kit and your weapons and all your ammo, you may not have the um, mid-session strength um, under, especially if you do it for a while, the strength endurance and all that stuff can lead to injury. So durability is um, a huge part of what we do, obviously. And our focus is just getting guys specifically fit for what they're going to be facing. Right. So foam rolling, is it going to help you? carry load sprinting we yeah we uh we do a little bit of foam rolling uh, but it's not a huge uh, part of what we do um we all of our sessions include generally you know mobility exercises we'll we'll plug in mobility exercises especially in strength circuits in the strength circuit to keep guys busy give them something to do as they're resting between sets um but also um we do know it, it carries there is some carryover but um, it's, uh, there's having a great overhead squat does not mean you won't get injured. Um, if you're not support specifically fit at the same time, I mean, I've seen, you know, it's just, uh, w- what I've kind of found anecdotally is the, the, the really good athletes and I define a really good athlete, um, uh, as someone who really moves well in space. Um, and so they'll, they're, they're the ones who smoke the FMS. I found they're delicate um, for whatever reason. Part of that might be that really good athletes are much more in tune with their body. And so a little ding will, will make them, you know, freak out. And uh, other athletes kind of like me, we don't score well in the FMS, but I'm like an F-150. You know, my first truck was old, 79 F-150. And, uh, you know, I think I dinged and beat up and, uh, you know, I run into walls with it and it just kept on going. <laughs> it was very durable. So, um, I guess taking a step back, we just kind of found that the best thing I do for my athletes on durability side is increase their relative strength and get them specifically fit for the event or the mission or the job they have. That's the best thing I can do. Rob, do you think there's any value for civilians striving to become a tactical athlete? You know, I think uh, the best thing that anybody can do for their their fitness life. What I've kind of found over over the years, in uh, as a guy who's been a I'm 48, kind of lifelong gym rat, is um, if you do your own programming, no matter what it is, you end up doing what you're good at or what you've always done. <laughs> it's really easy to get into a rut. And so if you're a civilian and you have an office job, you really don't have a, you know, a, a job that demands a certain level of fitness. What I recommend is, and there seems to be this, this path for civilians. They, they kind of get in the gym, they come in or whatever fitness perspective they do, especially if they don't have a collegiate athlete background, it may be a high school athlete. They get out of, you know, they go to college, they'll play intramurals or whatever, and then they'll get to their, their work life and uh, they'll end up doing aerobics or maybe getting endurance stuff. And then CrossFit or something similar will get them back in the gym and they'll kind of be all um, excited about that for a while. And it seemed the evolution of uh, the sport of fitness, which is pretty much what CrossFit is, is now um, athletes will take that fitness and they'll start doing stuff outside. 
um, and to see if their, their first stepping stone will be a Tough Mudder or Spartan Sprint Race um, or maybe a Go Ruck event, one of these kind of manufactured artificial outdoor events. Um, they're definitely physically challenging um, uh, but are still artificial. What I kind of find is my prediction for the next step is is athletes you know, on the civilian side. We're kind of seeing this now going ahead and saying, okay, I've, I've kind of done a Tough Mudder event or whatever. Now I want to go on my own and do a rim-to-rim, you know, push of the Grand Canyon. Or I want to come and, uh, you know, hike the uh, Bridger Teton Wilderness Highline Trail, you know, 50 miles in uh, in a week backpack. Or I want to go climb Rainier or Denali or um, I want to get into rock climbing. So um, what is kind of interesting from a fitness perspective is all those different things you're doing outside the gym if you're programming and, and training for those specifically in the gym, it keeps your gym life kind of really, there's just a lot of variety that you're, you're going to be doing. And it'll keep you in the gym where, you know, if you're just going to do the same thing all the time or, or train for appearance, really, um, it can get so stale so fast. But training for outside events, it just opens up a whole new incredible world to you, not only for the events, but also for, for your gym life. Certainly that's been my experience in and the athletes around the world who follow our stuff, you know, they kind of fall into that. It's interesting how, you know, people have been following our stuff for years. They're like, you know, I did this, you know, I, you know, I went and climbed Rainier, you know, I just did a go ruck. I'm going to go do a three gun, you know, shooting contest. <laughs> and, you know, this summer I'm looking at a 50 miler, you know, 50 mile ultra race. And uh, they're able to use our programming for all those types of events. And you can imagine their their gym life. It's so so much variety. It's so interesting. Right. So, yeah, I guess having that mindset as a professional athlete, tactical athlete, as someone you're training to do the thing you like to do outside the gym, that can really help civilians out a lot. Yeah, especially as a – especially when they're, the programming or training starts getting stale. Having an outside – something outside to train for can really enhance their training life. So let's, let's talk about more specifically the, the, what programming looks like at, uh, MTI. Um, I mean, your workouts, I've seen a few of them. They look, they look CrossFit like, but it's not really CrossFit. Um, cause you're doing things, you're doing Olympic lifts, you're doing sandbags, things like that. Sprints. Um, what do you think the difference between what you do at MTI and what you might see at a CrossFit workout? What is interesting about um, our programming is, in general, that the sessions, every session has a certain goal. Um, and so it's been a long time since I've taken a look at it. At, at, and, and within the CrossFit world, there's, you know, all the different gyms have different approaches. And CrossFit is known primarily for their work capacity, short, hard work capacity events. And we deploy some of that similar programming in our stuff. Um, but every session will have a different training objective. And right now, in general, we have um, four or five different training objectives. One is just relative strength. Another is work capacity, which I spoke of a little bit before. Another is chassis integrity, which is our approach to midsection strength training, uh, midsection strength and strength endurance. Um, on the tactical side, we have something called TAC-SEPA, which stands for Tactical Speed, Explosive Power, and Agility. And then um, for both the tactical and mountain side, we have endurance programming that we do. 
and then uh, on the mountainside we have climbing programming so um, as part of our general programming for mountain athletes um, one or two times a week we've got them in a rock gym you know doing intervals on a system board or bouldering problems or something like that so it's difficult to look at one of our individual specific training sessions and and say you know this is what we do all the time um, but in general every session will have a training objective um, what is the main difference between us I guess is CrossFit is we're training for outside performance and um, and so um, that is what gives us the liberty really to take and have these different focuses for the training sessions the other the other areas that we, we probably do a lot more endurance than than they do in the typical crossfit side and when i say endurance you know we're not into the i mean we do some long running and some long rucking some long endurance um we i believe you have to go long to train long to go long and so that's a big part I guess it's kind of hard to take a, a one session snapshot and say that way we do. That's what we do. Um, and perhaps that's the biggest difference between us and CrossFit is a lot of times you can take one session of a typical CrossFit workout and everything is going to be fairly similar. It's not the case with us. Um, I mean, uh, it's much different for us. Well, let's take a look at uh, with the strength side. I mean, what, what what are you guys doing? Is it body weight stuff, lifting weights? What what kind of thing do we see on the, developing that relative body weight strength? Um, yeah, we do. Um, we've developed actually five or six different strength progressions over the years that we used um, to develop relative strength, and most of those are barbell based. Uh, but when I say strength progression, you know, for example, the uh, Five three one, which is a popular five five five, is a popular strength progressions. We've developed our own uh, strength progression. So um, we use uh, barbell strength. Um, we use everything from one RM, and then broken down from that percentage based progression based on one RMs. We use um, something we call Big Twenty Four, where we'll have an athlete do work up to a three RM, and then do a progression based on a three RM. We have a progression we call three five seven where we'll deploy a 1RM, a percentage-based um, effort based on that 1RM in the same session, and then also have, right after that, a hard body weight-based work capacity effort, three to seven minutes long, uh, which complements the strength word that was done previously. Complements meaning deploys the same movements and uh, muscles, movement patterns and muscles. And the idea is to elicit some of that hormonal flush that they kind of get out of a CrossFit to enhance the, the strength, strength work. Um, so, um, and uh, sometimes we'll take and we'll step out of barbell work to do a uh, body weight focused, um, cycle of strength training, um, primarily just to unload for a while. Um, when I say relative strength, I mean strength per body weight. That doesn't mean body weight strength. For example, our strength standard for tactical athletes is a uh, 1.5 body weight bench press and front squat. So if I weigh 150 pounds, I want to be able to front squat and bench press 225. That's one of our strength standards for um, tactical athletes. So it's not like we want to be able to do, you know, so many air squats in a certain time. That's strength endurance. We're we're interested in relative strength. 
So, so I mean, I, I know you can't uh, get like a broad sweeping look at what a program looks like, but it sounds like you're gonna have a workout where you'll do some strength followed by some work capacity. And then the next day you might do some endurance work, depending on what your uh, mission specific goal is. Right. Either the mission specific goal or and, and again, in general, the way our programming work is the more, the further you are from the event, the more general your programming can be. And we call that general programming. We call that base programming, mountain base, military base, law enforcement base. That general programming isn't totally random. There's definitely a focus to that. And, and that focus is training those different attributes that we want to train. So, for example, let's say we have a guy who's going to uh, SFAS, which is Green Beret Selection. And he's got um, six months to train our Green Beret Selection specific program. We call the Ruck Base Selection Training Program is eight weeks long. We want him to do that program right eight weeks right before he goes to selection. So that's two months. We've got four months for him to do other stuff. And that other stuff is what we call our tactical base. So he'll be working on cycles that train um, relative strength, work capacity, endurance. Um, tactical SEPA, um, and chassis integrity. So his typical week, May, Monday, he's coming in and he's doing um, TAC SEPA, agility, and strength. Tuesday's coming in and he's – or Tuesday, he's out rucking um, with a 45-pound pack for you know, six miles. Wednesday comes in. He does another um, half session of relative strength. The second half is work capacity. Thursday <clears> – <throat> He's, uh, he's going to go out and do um, uh, 800 intervals based on a three-mile run time he did before. We're working on his speed over ground for running. Um, Friday comes in. He does um, work capacity and chassis integrity. And then Saturday is another long ruck. So you can kind of see how that kind of works together. We're trying to train all those different attributes concurrently. Now when he gets to that eight weeks before um, selection – the idea of training that stuff concurrently goes out the window. We're not concerned about that anymore. We want to get that athlete sport specifically ready for special forces selection. What does that mean? It means we're going to greatly increase his rucking. Um, he's going to do a lot more rucking. The first thing he's going to do when he gets there, he's going to have to do the APFT, the Army Physical Fitness Test, push-ups, sit-ups, um, three-mile or two-mile run. So we're going to the first day of the of our plan, he's going to take the APFT, and we're going to use his scores on that um, APFT, that initial one, and for specific progression as he works through our plan. He's also going to get um, team events and and just work capacity smokers at selection, long days where they'll just come out and they'll mess with the guys, right? Um, we'll, so we've developed um, work capacity events sandbag work, dumbbell work, stuff in a vest or an IBA, individual body armor. His, his uh, now his sport-specific plan will train all these different attributes, get him specifically ready for um, special forces selection. It includes a Saturday long ruck. Um, so he'll work up, I think, like 18 miles on Saturdays just for rucking. Um, it's a very intense, um, super focused on the fitness demands at selection. It includes a taper. The last week is a taper. It's assessment-based. So the athlete will come in. The first week is an assessment week. Um, the, he'll, he'll do programming based on his assessment results. 
uh, week four, we'll reassess him. We're assuming he's going to get more fit, and then we'll reset all the progressions for the last few weeks. And then the last week is a taper week. So hopefully we're sending him in to SFAS, um, sport-specifically fit, sport fit for that event, uh, but also relatively fresh so it can hammer and get ready to hit it hard when he gets there. That sounds awesome. I'm a civilian. I don't plan on joining the Green Berets. That sounds like an awesome program. I mean, so after that, like, what do like, what does a maintenance program look like? Let's say you you've you're a first responder, you're a police officer, you're in the military, you're on active duty, uh, you've passed the test. Um, does is there like a set maintenance program do you follow, or are you all always constantly updating that to I don't know, make it exciting, make it fresh, um, but also ensure that these guys are ready to do their job? Yeah, when they once he gets done with selection, he's going to drop back into that tactical base programming. The tactical base programming has its own over the years. Um, we've each cycle, each, each tactical base programming cycles, even on the mountainside and on all of our cycles now are six weeks long. And each of them has a certain emphasis. So we'll be training on the tactical side and the military side, you know, relative strength, work capacity, endurance, chassis integrity, taxipa concurrently. But within each cycle, we'll take a couple of those attributes and we'll place some emphasis on them. So for example, this cycle, um, a base cycle, maybe there's emphasis on strength and work capacity. An unload week, the next cycle will be emphasis on chassis integrity and tactical agility. An unload week, the next emphasis will be on endurance. So the athlete is still training all those different fitness attributes, uh, but each cycle has a little bit of emphasis to get that athlete better in that attribute. And what we've kind of found is that methodology creates a pretty incredible um, variety for the different athletes. We talk about what we call the burden of constant fitness for tactical and and even mountain athletes, professional mountain athletes, but especially um, tactical athletes, military, fire rescue, and um, law enforcement. These guys or these athletes, I hate to say saying guys, we work with plenty of female athletes, but these athletes, they can never really afford to be out of shape. And so they got to be constantly training, and that creates a burden. It can really lead to staleness in your programming if, you're, if you keep on doing the same thing. Over the years, we found that our base fitness cycles really do a great job of um, addressing the staleness and keeping things interesting. Generally, in a base fitness cycle, you know there will be some type of assessment. Um, so, uh, for example, I mentioned the one earlier. Maybe he'll be, you know, come out in the first week of the cycle. The athlete will need to do a, a one mile or a three mile run for time, and they will do progressions based on that assessment. And the middle cycle will reassess it, um, and that assessment and kind of measuring yourself really helps keep things interesting as well um, our programming is continually evolving just last year we i mean just this past couple of years we introduced we changed the way we train mid-session strength completely with our new chassis integrity theory um, we introduced taxipa so it's not like our programming um, is static we're continually evolving it as we look to find things that work better and work well. One of the changes that we made just this past year was we got away from what I call garbage reps. Um, I'm 48. I've probably been doing my programming longer than anybody, and my knees are just stiff. <laughs> They're pretty damn stiff all the time now. And I wonder if 
all the lightly loaded squats and lunges I did in the past, kind of following, you know, like a, a bunch of thrusters to a run or something, if that had impacted my knees. So we've gotten away from, if we're going to work a deep squatting movement, we're going to go either really heavy or body weight. We're not going to do just moderately loaded stuff. We, So our, our programming, I guess, what I'm trying to impart is that we're always evaluating what we're doing, trying to do it better, thinking about mission performance, long-term longevity for the athletes, mission durability, all those types of things. And if you're doing your job well, no matter what your profession is, you're always looking to continuously improve. And with that continuous improvement uh, from the athlete's perspective is this programming that hopefully is getting them ready for their job, but also is really interesting and intriguing to do. Um, and hopefully keeping them interested in their programming and their training and uh, making them fit for their jobs. Awesome. Well, Rob, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about what you do at MTI and find out more about signing up for some of your programs you have available? Yeah, just our uh, website, just uh, mtntactical.com, and uh, everything's right there. Well, Rob Shaw, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett. My guest today was Rob Shaw. He's the founder and president of the Mountain Tactical Institute. You can find more information about the programming they do there at Mountain Tactical Institute by going to mtntactical.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash athlete, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy our show, appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.